The Tea Talk, a podcast by Schwules Museum Berlin, hosted by Sunny Est. Hi everyone and welcome to the third episode of The Tea Talk. Today I have with me Kuchenga. Kuchenga is a black transsexual feminist whose work seeks to cleave souls open with truth and sincerity. She has been published in many magazines, including Cosmopolitan, Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. She chooses to live wherever her heart leads her. She is proud to be called a lady of letters and a woman of wanderlust. She's currently writing a novel telling the tale of a young black trans girl from North London whose triumphant journey takes her down a path of sexual scandal, substance abuse and a mission to prove the Jamaican family legend that she is a descendant of Admiral Horatio Nelson. In the years to come, she hopes to follow in the footsteps of Marie Dawn and Johnny Pitts to see if she can become a true Afropean. Hi, Kuchenga, and welcome. Hey, Sunny. Hi. What's tea, babe? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, I want to go and jump onto my first and only prepared question to you. <laughs> What's the tea? What is the tea? What is my tea? Um, today, I am feeling so stressed out because um, my article... <clears throat> For Porter Magazine came out today. I interviewed um, India Moore. Okay. Um, and it was such a transformative experience. And I, I've just been so overly concerned that I'd done them justice, that um, it read well and stuff. And then um, I'm a creaky old millennial as well. So I feel like the... Um, necessity to like you know publicize oneself on um social media i get like all in a tears like you know all different platforms and you know what do i pull out for twitter and what do i put on instagram and oh my god i gotta put the stories too and you know they're like, oh, you know, still put it on facebook i i don't know um so yeah i'm a little harried and flustered but um i'm really enjoying the tea that you've got me and i am <laughs> um I'm also like just really conscious that I'm a 35 year old black trans woman. And I know that there's um, a lot of dispute over the, you know, the our life expectancy in the Americas and whatever, because I know it's a pithy thing to say that, you know, the life expectancy for black trans women, trans women of color is, you know, 35, even though <clears throat> the statistics on that don't really bear that, it's there's some dispute about that um but nevertheless i think it's an achievement for me to be sitting here having a career high like you know interviewing india more is just like just such a shocking achievement for me uh, particularly because you know i watched them on screen for what's it, it's been three years now i think yeah since um post came around and <clears throat> also I'm five years and five months free of alcohol and drugs. Yeah, so I've got um, that under my belt, which is, yeah, I, I always forget, you know, <laughs> because I was, I was, 
um, really at Amy Winehouse levels of usage before I went oh, to really? rehab. Like I just, you know, I heard her song. <laughs> so I, um, I don't know, Amy, I think I should go. Um, <laughs> so, I, so I did. And I just, I never thought that I'd get a day without, um, yeah, any drugs or alcohol. And so and now I'm sitting here with five years. So that's a big deal. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm in overwhelm. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm in overwhelm. And I also love that when a trans woman asks me, like, what's the tea? I love, like, not bringing up trade. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I love that, like, um, I have really important relationships with certain men in my life, sure. But they have receded in importance. Um, And that's not a grand feminist statement at all. I think it's more just a reflection of um, me changing what I what I value and stuff. There was always <clears throat> for decades my life was just organized around some man or what men wanted or you know what do they find attractive? Who will love me? What it's about and stuff. And it's really scary, but um it's becoming less and less important um what men think of me. Yes. Yeah. And that will be at least like the fourth thing to give you congratulations for in in this brief <laughs> few minutes Thank that you've you. spoken. Like I'm still, first of all, I didn't know that the article was coming out today. Yeah. So congrats on that. Thank you. First of all, I can very much relate to the stress of being like in. Like, in spite of having a career high, the tendency of your brain is still to worry and, like, to think of the things that you're not doing. Mm -hmm. So I hope you're giving yourself also enough space to enjoy the goodness that is actually also mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I also feel it very much like I'm, I'm two, well, I'm three years younger than you. Mm. Or, yeah, I'm 32 at the moment. So I also... Like since ever since I'm like over 30, I have become very much aware of like the fact that I'm a survivor. Right. Like being a trans woman of color. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, also congratulations on being sober. Thank you. <laughs> Would you yeah. mind elaborating a little bit on the interview? Mm. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, First of all, how did it happen? Did you get to meet them or was it online? I have the most wonderful agent. I've got um, my agents, um, Celia Edwards at Mushrooms Entertainment Limited. And um, she is just the best. And she's able to field, um, you know, media requests in, for me and stuff. And she's like first line of defense. You know, <laughs> so um, I don't deal with a lot of the... Um, you know, the, like the trauma requests that I got mm. used to, is, you know, particularly at certain times of year, you know, around Pride and around Black History Month and around, you know, mm. just wondering if um, Kachanka would be interested in coming and talking about her most painful and traumatic experiences for 20 euros. Um, that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or free, actually. Most, more often than not, it was actually free. Wow. Um, yeah, definitely. I, I, I really took that to heart, I thought it was just me. I thought, like, you know, because I see the way that social media is, you know, you see everyone else, you know, with, you know, their, like, 
you know, Vivian Westwood bags and, you know, <laughs> schlapping around Paris and, you know, off to the Maldives and stuff. So I just see glamour. And then for me, I'm like looking at my bank balance and it's hellish and you know, I'm trying and I'm writing for these places and I feel bad that like, I don't have what these other people have and I haven't got a bit till yet and whatever and stuff. So yeah, I'm really grateful to have someone who defends me, but also promotes me in the most gorgeous, um, um, like it's very professional, but it still has like a I don't know, like a maternal kind of element to it. You know what I mean? Like I'm, and particularly because I need my confidence requires so much. I'm not doing okay. Oh, would you ever read of it and tell me if it's all right, please? <laughs> so, so I feel bad that I, um, I ask so much of her, but you know that's the gig. Um, and so, yeah, Porter Magazine contacted her and then that was sent on to me and it was an immediate yes um, and stuff. And I'm also like, you know, like I obviously when someone reads my bio or introduces me or whatever, that I kind of feel like I've, I'm really glad to have the bylines that I do. I've, you know. To have the what? Sorry. To have the bylines, to have the publications that I've written for. Um you know, it's it's nice. Like I can't pretend, like, you know, and I you know, like, I wanna be less pretentious and say, oh, you know, the prestige doesn't matter and it's whatever. But at the same time, for the life that I've led, I think it's been nice to just have my little you know, they're like girl guides badges or something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, get it. You totally deserve it. Yeah. Yeah. So um so yeah, it's it's nice to um have that have that sense of achievement around certain things, but <clears throat> also like because my ambitions have grown, expanded, and changed, um having the most prestigious titles associated with my names is no longer the biggest motivating factor, even though it's you know still significant. It's become now much more about meaning mm-hmm. and um I've been asking myself okay so what's next do you know what I mean if you've if you've got if you've written for you know all of these digital magazines you've written, you know you've written Vogue you've written Fabulous you've written Pop Magazine what's what matters and I was speaking with a theatre maker the other day um and we had like a nice, like long Zoom call and stuff. And, you know, I was doing the usual stuff, speaking about my education and how things started and where I started um, my creative writing course and that sort of thing. Um, but towards the end, I said something which surprised myself. I said that I saw myself as like the black trans Zora Neale Hurston. I want to be you know, because she <clears throat> is an African-American woman writer who, um, I think she studied anthropology at the Barnard um, Center for Women in New York and, you know, did so much, um, like, ethnographic work going um, to the southern states and Caribbean islands, like Haiti and Jamaica, like, looking at um, linguistics, but also, like, cultural and religious practices around, you know... Voodoo and Obia and and um, but also just listening to how um, black people in the Americas talked 
and the stories about <clears throat> she really archived, catalogued, elevated um, black culture throughout her lifetime. And I often refer to like Nina Simone saying that, you know, it's an artist's like responsibility to reflect the times that they're in. Um, which once I heard that coming from her, I was like, okay, fine. Because <laughs> before then, I was like, oh, you know, I would look at my contemporaries, like mostly my <clears throat> white cis peers, and I'd be like, you know, they're so unencumbered. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and like, even though, you know, a lot of them are complaining in the you news, know, culture war, like cancel culture, you know, can't write anything. I was like, but they always want to write about us. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> they're constantly wanting to write about blacks, wanting to have a trans character, have a queer character, you know, and stuff. Um, but when it comes to writing about themselves, there wasn't, they didn't fit, they don't have, my context anyway, they did not have that sense of responsibility to represent whiteness in a particular way. Mm. Um, which is also challenging because, you know, like not talking about it is not thinking about whiteness, um, I feel is, um, oh, it's a lack, you know, they, they need to go there. Do you know what I mean? You're writing yeah. about everyone else but yourself <laughs> as it goes. Let's speak about you and how you came to be like this. Um, <laughs> and, but at the same time, I was like, I wanted to write fluffy pieces you know like I'm there's a Carrie Bradshaw in me and I um like in becoming um yeah in becoming a journalist I wanted to write for wet for women's magazines about all of the pop culture stuff that had got me going like I remember Britney Spears with the snake at the MTV awards and you know <laughs> like I want to write about you know like um Manolo Blahniks and Birkins and you know um, how to keep your man happy and stuff. That's what, like, the inner child of me felt, you know. Oh, she so needed. that's the thing you wanted, you were more inclined to. Uh, that's the at way, the that's at the start. Like, I mean, because I was coming from, like, an activism background. I started writing professionally um, whilst I was part of Black Lives Matter UK. And um, I was also writing to trans girls in prison and stuff. And. Um, so that was through Bent Bars, which is an LGBT prison pen pal service and stuff. And so I, it just, it felt really heavy. Do you know what I mean? Everything that I was being writing about, you know, writing about um, Chimamanda Adichie's um, comments on trans women and, you know, like, oh my God, she's invalidated me. And like, all of a sudden, it was just, everything was a response to something. And I was like, I just don't want to have to do this all the time. I don't want to have to respond to someone's ignorance, bigotry, bigotry, whatever. I, I want to write what my friends are writing, you know, about going blonde. And, you know, like... <laughs> it's, um, so, yeah, it just felt like toil. You know, just like all of this drama, all of this stuff. And I like, and so at that time, I sat to myself, I was like, what do I want to write? And I'm like, okay, what appealed to me um, growing up um, about journalism, but media more broadly, was um, just like just how sexy it was to be in a seat of culture, you know, like being a Londoner, like I liked that, you know, songs would refer to London as well as Paris, New York, Tokyo, whatever. And so I was really aware that, you know, things are being produced and, you know, this I'm part of a generation and, you know, I can be at this, um, somewhere where I can report on it. And so I would be at secondary school, <clears throat> school at high school, sorry, um, 
I'd be given my dinner money, you know, for lunch, my lunch money. And I would, um, this is not healthy at all, but I would use my lunch money for magazines um, because, yeah, like all of the diet culture stuff. I mean, I came up during the, um, what's it, all the millennials on TikTok are talking about the, um, the Paris Hilton era, the um, Lindsay Lohan era, you know, so like the body type of that time, you know, prominent hip bones and, you know, flat stomachs and is it Misha Barton in the OC and stuff? Yeah, that was the look and stuff. Nicole Richie. Right, exactly. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, because like her weight loss was like, oh, it was obviously wasn't a betrayal, but it was literally you know, further fuel to the fire, you know, she can do it. Do you know what I mean? You know, big fat black old you can do it. Do you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, so that was really rough. I, sorry to to cut you, but like, I, it's, it's really nice for me to hear about your background, like that Mm. you first were in activism Mm. and then you started writing and also Mm. like, not like started, but professionally. Mm. And, because like since I met you, we've known each other for like a year now. Mm-hmm. Um, I've it always it always struck me that you are extremely politically aware and critical of all the bigotry and etc. Like it's not a matter of like there is no I have never had the feeling that you might be you know ignorant or oblivious of anything. However, I always had the feeling that you choose to like it's like you choose lightness and kindness Mm. um and this is something that is i find really rare in the community at least in the community in berlin Mm. and my thoughts on it are that it probably comes from a place of people being like finding themselves finding themselves in berlin like coming here and then coming out in berlin you know or like um let's like talking about light skin poc for example people like me who come here and then here become racialized you know and then here find out that they are poc and then i i feel like the struggles are still quite fresh in people's minds in the berlin community in the community so to speak and i'm talking about the community of first generation migrants of course um and so i do feel like there is a lot of tension and anger that kind of ends up being turned against one another Mm. which you know like is a problem definitely and so yeah I always ask myself like how how does such like a political body and voice write also political novels Mm. and you know without let's say surrendering to like the bitterness and being like do you know what i'm talking about i do how is it yeah. how do you perceive that though i think i was raised in a pan-africanist home my father's Zimbabwe and my mother's jamaican and they met in south london in the early 80s at a time of intense political struggle and strife with the brixton riots and um, they were working at the Brixton Law Centre on the Scrap Sus campaign because the Sus laws were <clears throat> basically, um, they were laws that gave the police the right to stop um, people who they suspected as being about to commit a crime. And the people who they tended to suspect were about to commit a crime tended to be black. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's shocking. Yeah. I like, no. <laughs> 
No, Ra- they didn't. The police? <laughs> Racially profiling? <laughs> what? But you know, that was ages ago, and yeah, nothing yeah, yeah nothing like that happens now. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so like, I, I grew up in a home with so many books. It was a real library. Um, and so it was kind of like... You know, it's like black literary haven almost, like within our community and stuff. Like, I mean, we had lots of, you know, like lower middle class black bourgeois aspirationist friends who like had like books in their homes and not like not like we did um, and stuff. So we were raised to feel like that, well, that we were special, you know, and that our, and that our minds were special, like. My mum belonged to black women's book clubs and like in spite of not always having anywhere near enough money, um, we never wanted for school trips and books, you know, they, if like my mum would complain, that's why, that's why I was forced to go to the library because like she would always be buying books and then I would read them too quickly. Like, oh, you have to go to the library then. (laughs) Stuff. Um, so when I got to um, university, I was, it was more like an, uh, it was, I'd already had like a really good, solid, grounded political education from them. And so then, yeah, I went to university and I felt naively that, I was going to be the one that changed everything that, you know, that, um, yeah, I thought, I thought that I found them to be bitter. You know, I was like to them, I was like, no, you don't understand. You know, that my white friends, they're different. You know, that they're really, they like that. (laughs) You know, I know how it was in your day, but you know, my white friends, they're okay. And stuff. And that was whilst I was, um, being tokenized and stuff and feel not really understanding the dynamics of it. I'd begun to read a bit of Bell Hooks, so I kinda knew what was going on, but I wasn't really there. And then in my final year of university, I became <clears throat> so radicalized because everything started to sync together. I suddenly understood the concept of intersectionality as a working practice for, as practice for like how to look at the world, how to look at situations and stuff. Not just like, you know, this kind of, I feel like people use intersectional now because it's been commodified as this kind of like, it's feminist booster. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, as it goes, you know. Like, I want my badge. I want right. my real exactly. feminist badge. I have to use that word yeah, now. Yeah. Like, like, now with extra empowerment. Yeah, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, whereas I didn't see it as that because of, um, you know, the black feminist reading that I was doing, it was, you know, this is a way of looking at things. And so things got really um, rough when, to be honest, like, I just, like, look, I was, I just lost all my popularity because everyone, all of my white friends at the time were, you know, just so shocked that I was now angry and that I had rage. Up until that point, I'd just been the laughy, laughy one. Oh my God, can't wait to have you at the party sort of thing. And then here I was talking about oppression and I was just in so much pain. I just, I was like, I have all of this self-hate I thought it was an individual thing. It's not. Do you know what I mean? Like, this has been done to me and I don't want it inside of myself anymore. I want it out. And so, so um, 
it was a rough time. It was, this was pre-Tumblr, but I was really Tumblr-y. You know, really, you know, cancelled, cancelled, like, you know, um, get rid of them. Like, they're, they're racist. That's awful. And stuff. How um, is it now having white friends? Um, I don't know. I think... Um... I mean, oh, okay, no, I can speak. No, I, I don't want to. I'm not trying no, to. Frame no, no, it. it's cool. I <laughs> yeah. think I was hesitating because I was just like, okay, how honest do I want to be? Okay. <laughs> so, I think the white friends that made it through that process were the ones who could see my rage as justifiable. Okay, I was. N- <clears throat> I was cloddy and clumpy in the way that I was trying to express myself and it was a bit too rough and a bit too raw and a bit too castigating and whatever, but I had a right to be angry. I'm a whole black trans woman, do you know what I mean? Like, I've been through a lot. And so, even if there was a period where we didn't get on or didn't talk, whatever, those that made it through were the ones who had also done quite a bit of reading, to be honest, and had spoken to others. And was begin, and they were beginning to see. Okay, I may not see what their everyday is like, but they are all going through something that I don't have experience of. So those are the ones who made it through that time. And then <clears throat> I think I'm only really friends with white friends with white um, <laughs> with white people who are like and solidly anti-racist activists, unless they are like scholars of white supremacy and really do, you know, I, they're not friends. Like I'm, I can talk and we can have a chat and whatever, but not really. The I have to be frank though and say that that's with me socially. When it comes to men that I date, uh, I am terrible. <laughs> I am, was it um, Kimberly Foster, the um, founder of um, For Harriet, the black feminist platform on YouTube and Patreon. Um, she had this quote that she says, um, um, a feminist in the streets and a pick me in the sheets. And that is, that I was called out, literally. I was called the F, that is completely me. I will be out here raging and raging and how dare you and you're reducing me and and then... <laughs> When my man comes home, girl, <laughs> literally sweetness, and and I realized oh. this because there was this like Angolan guy who I lost my head over, and like you know, messy biz. I won't I won't spill all of his tea on the podcast, but yeah, like you know, like I was very demonized, and so oh, yeah. yeah. And so, like, as the relationship wore on over, like, a year or so, a couple of years or whatever, everything came out, like, you know, the baby mother and stuff. So I was like, okay. And then, like, I had the period of time where I was, like, not talking to him. and like, no, you don't see me. You don't see me. And then he called. He called. And then, like... I think that night he was round. And then the following morning after a whole night of whatever. And I was there in the kitchen in my lingerie, like cooking chicken, like just ridiculous. And I was like, look at yourself. Look at you. Do you like all of the black feminist reading? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, where's Angela now? Okay. Oh, <laughs> uh, mess girl. And I also wrote um, something for... Um, 
Afro trans and um, Michaela, um, uh, wonderful black trans woman in Cas Rebel, which is um, yeah, a black feminist organization in France, and they had their first um, black trans anthology um, that came out um, this year called Afro Trans. And for that, I wrote um, a piece called Why They Hate Us, which is basically like a just a piece about um, like the transphobia that black trans femmes particularly go through. I also wrote about Brexit and Pillow Talk, which was about um, a piece about me and my relationships with white working class men and the conversations that I have with them being intimate and transformative and awkward, but like, like somehow quite enriching and stuff. So yeah, I think I have to distinguish between my relationships with white friends who I hold to a particular standard and, you know, they need to be at like a Matt McGorry level of reading. You know, <laughs> I want that. They need to be coming to me, telling me the books to read. Do you know what I mean? Oh. Um, that doesn't really happen to be honest. I still buy, yeah. I'm still the one who sources books for them. But um, <clears throat> when it comes to my relationships, I can't lie. I haven't found a way to be, um, um, to, to stick to whatever like feminist principles I would love to in relationship. I don't really know how to do that. I have two selves that I, I yeah. I try to apply that to dating and it's a struggle. It's definitely mm. a struggle. Like, yeah, I wouldn't say that I expect them to be super woke, but I expect Ooh. them to not reproduce, say, or act in any sort of like... I, I, I at least expect them to be aware of mm. the amount of patriarchy and white supremacy in their upbringing and yeah. in the way that we, you know, navigate the world and interact mm. with one another. And mm. it doesn't really happen, especially mm. because flirting, like, there is so much, like, about power yeah. dynamics in mm -hmm. that. And mm -hmm. then, like... So how, yeah, and men are usually trained, like cis men are trained mm. to to show dominance as right. a as a way of like affection. Yeah. And I, it's weird. It's yeah, I weird. Mean, I completely, yeah, I feel like I've got to say that for me, my conditioning has meant that, you know, being passive, being submissive, I, I, will, I will poke, I will be coquettish in a way, <laughs> but I won't, I won't, I'm not necessarily, I'm, I think, um, I kind of um, see myself as being like a Joan Holloway from Mad Men in relationships, do you know what I mean? Kind of like buxom and bodacious and like, you know, like actually really intelligent, but like, you know, it doesn't feel the need to, you know, drive it home with the men because you understand how to make them feel like men or something. That's something that I really know. And also I think when I'm in my, in my, obviously I'm in the depths of writing my novel right now, um, and that's been wonderful because I don't think that's just me. Like I know from <clears throat> conversations with my girlfriends and my sister and, you know, I know that I'm not the only one that feels this, but it's also fun to see on paper and to see the dynamics between um, trans women and the men we date. Um, like, you yeah, know, it's mathematical. You know, it's also like... Thinking about that, what I find what I find really like horrendous is that, for example, I have made the experience of dating like pro-feminist men, for example, mm. right, and who are like, oh, I'm aware also of class and mm. of everything, mm. um, and racial oppression and this and that. And then if we like, if I 
present any sort of like desire or attraction to their masculinity mm. even if even when they are performing it naturally mm. you know mm. and even like they're naturally dominating like if as is, for example if i will cook a meal for them and do something and then just enjoy their company and be embraced from the back and whatever you know and have a little kiss on the neck then it very quickly is also turned against me. It's like, oh, so you, yes. as the trans woman, mm -hmm. you are here, yeah, like uh, reaffirming, mm -hmm. yeah. the like you are the mm -hmm. problem again, like you right. are the anti-feminist, mm -hmm. right? Ugh, like so many things to unpack. Yeah, I think um, the, I think that warped sort of, and I wish you know, you I cared less. I but I feel there's a vigilance with us. Do you know what I mean? Because everyone's looking at how we employ gender and the way what we're doing and how we're polluting um, the very concept of womanhood with our being. It's all, you know, frivolous at best, but also but at worst, it's kind of like. Um, debaucherous kind of cheapening like you know sissification of like <laughs> a woman that we're supposedly doing and so so i feel like we are being watched for how we perform gender more than others um and i was reading detransition baby um by tori peters um a couple of months ago which is I mean, it's a great setup. It's um, basically a white trans woman um, who has had a relationship with someone who has detransitioned, and that person. So that's um, yeah, Reese, um, who has gone out with um, Ames, who's now detransitioned. Um, and has detransitioned and gone on to have a relationship with a cis woman of colour. Um, and the novel is about the aims, the detransitioned person's like desire to have some, this new kind of queer family set up between the three of them and stuff. And <clears throat> it was interesting to me because. Um, Reese, that um, is not someone that I like felt like super emotionally attached to. It's like, I mean, she's likable but unlikable in different ways, so it's like, I thought that was interesting to watch. And <clears throat> I think also it's funny that I say watch because it's a, it's a testament to Tori Peters's um writing skill that I really it did, I did experience it like filmically. I was thinking, oh, this is. This is very HBO here. Let's let's get this going. You know what I mean, let's have a little war between the HBO and Showtime because this, yeah, I can see this. Um, and um, I actually spent a lot of time considering the um, Ames's position because for them having detransitioned, like, and but also the reasons for their detransition that it just became too hard. You know that they just couldn't. It was just so so difficult for them to live my life as a trans woman and stuff which is completely valid and like you know it was I feel like it's so sad that like people like um will paint us as you know these like thoroughly unreasonable people like you know and like my girlfriends of every bloody persuasion do you know what I mean we are so diverse like every I'm, me and my girlfriend and they will always say you know everyone's transition um, is individual do you know what I mean you can't like really advise a girl on what to do um, 
but also just like the compassion that I had for them as someone who felt the need to detransition. Like that's, that's real, isn't it? But I also thought, wait a second, like why is it that I never felt like that? There was, from the time, like, you know, I faced homelessness, rejection, estrangement from a family, excommunication, violence, trauma, assault. Like, I go see all, I go for all of that. And I'm like, yeah, but I still want it though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, it doesn't, I doesn't, you could do anything to me and I would still literally last breath missing a leg, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I'm still a woman, bitch. Like, yes. you know what I mean? <laughs> like, literally, I think that is so, it's miraculous. You know, because obviously, you know, you're on the internet and all the comments and, you know, yet more articles and yet more this and yet more that. And I just feel like there's something so strident and expansive and magical about the fact that in spite of everything that the world tells us, we turn around and say, yeah, but sorry. Still gonna do it, isn't it? <laughs> um, oh. And I'm like, I'm thinking because I'm also writing about um, my character's um, experience of um, like transphobic, homophobic bullying and in their youth and stuff. And I feel like T.S. Madison put up a meme this meet that was made, like you know, one of these like shade room adjacent places put up a meme. I think it was T.S. Madison and Maya Scott King, maybe Sydney Starr and someone else. And it's like, yeah, fellas, you know, which one of these women would you choose? Whatever, like little stats next to them, like tickets, whatever. And it's obviously a meme that's created, you know, as kind of like gotcha moment. <clears throat> um, So that, you know, the men that see the meme and respond you know, and then the afterwards, everyone can go in and say, oh, you don't even know, yeah, these are Chinese bitch, oh my God, and stuff. And, I mean, T.S. Madison obviously responded in the affair with hilarity and, you know, so she's been so fundamental to how much I have grown to love myself. Like, um, yeah, I'm just so thankful for T.S. Madison and the way that she has lifted me up in my transition and stuff. But I also thought, like, you know, the person who's made that meme spent decades hitting on every feminine thing that came past their eyeline, you know, as a youth, you know, of course, you know, he was dropping F-bombs in physics and chemistry, he was, you know, doing all sorts, you know, smoking with the boys and seeing someone down the road, no, I ain't got time for that, no, etc., etc., you know, Seeing Zaya Wade come on their timeline, I just don't think it's right for you know a child to be loved by their family. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I just feel like that's probably what it is. They have put so much time into trying to crush us, and then we come. Instead, we turn around and we're just so beautiful, like you know, like just soft and swishy and potacious, literally. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, we Absolutely. have, we just have so much ebullience and I, I think it kills them. The fact that we are literally uncrushable. And I thought also about the fact, I interviewed the um, writer Samuel R. Delaney, um, uh, black gay writer and 
um, Glasgow, I think it was. Yeah, Glasgow 2017. Uh, a wonderful event called Eureka. Um, like a whole... Is it a weekend or a week? It was basically a wonderful um, Scottish, like, radical and acoustic collective of people who put this great event together. And so, yeah, he's a sci-fi writer and has written wonderful stuff and we're talking about, you know, the way that gender and sex and race has informed his work and everything. And he grew he was in New York in the sixties and seventies, you know, cruising and, you know, in every bathhouse and cinema and doing all sorts and stuff. And so we had this wonderful, um, you know, conversation about you know, sex positivity and, anarchy and all sorts and it was wonderful and then he said something i found really interesting which was that for him like you know as a black gay man when he thinks about straight people's reaction to like gayness he was like you know if gay people didn't exist like they would still create us in art you know like they'd still spend you know time thinking, oh my god what if it was like a man and man you know <laughs> stuff like just conceptually it's like wild and I feel exactly the same for transness, like, you know, like, if there was, if there wasn't a single trans person on earth, we'd still be the hottest literary ticket, V. Like, you know what I mean? Just, you know, and yeah, and then, you know, they transform and they do this to that and then they grow and become this and do that and then some of them are like this and some are like that. I just feel like people are obviously fascinated by us. You know, like, they they cannot wrap their heads around it. And, like, all the repulsion and the disgust and whatever, the, the math is not mathing, um, as Kalechi Okafor says. Um, yeah, I love listening to her podcast because it's just, like, people really tell on themselves. Um, like I just, I feel like... People are, are dishonest that as well as the, all of their like consternation about what what we're possibly doing and, and everything, there's this really intense fascination with our gall and the audacity. And they can't imagine doing the same. No, I can. Absolutely not. Well, thanks a lot, Kuchenga. I wish I had more time to keep speaking to you. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, I have to say goodbye. Alas. already <laughs> thank you so much for your brilliance this has been a wonderful afternoon i'm really really grateful to you honestly thank you oh thank you and everybody check out her article with india Moore, which is published again at um yeah um find me on instagram it's um k-u-c-h-e-n-g-a kachenga quite simply and i'm kacheng cheng on twitter but kachenga.com is where you can find all of my writing all right everybody follow her and see you next month goodbye bye the Tea Talk, a podcast by Schwules Museum Berlin, hosted by Sunny Est. <laughs>